My name is Bill, one of the pastors here at the Capitol Press family. So whether you're here in our sanctuary, down in our fellowship hall, at our Fairfax site, online, we are really thrilled to worship together. Let's pray that God would meet us in these words from the Gospel of John. Father, we come to these words that come through your Son, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would open our minds and hearts that they would make us different people in light of the grace of your gospel. Would you do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So a phrase that has just always fascinated me comes from Charles Dickens' description of one of the bit characters in his novel, Great Expectations. So this is how he describes Georgiana Pocket. She's a lady who's a cousin of Miss Havisham, and she pretends to care about the lady, but she really just wants her money. And this is Dickens' description. He says, she was a cousin, an indigestive single woman who called her rigidity religion. I mean, what an interesting phrase, who called her rigidity religion. And the thing is, that's not just a good description of Georgiana Pocket, it's a good description of many Christians that we get given this wonderful gift by Jesus Christ and then we turn the Christian life into a joyless slog. We take something that he says is easy and light and we turn it into a difficult, slow death march. But that's not what he prays for us. Look here in the text. If you've got a Bible, open up to what we looked at in John 17 and look at verse 13. He says this. He says, I pray these things so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Christ comes and prays this prayer, not so that we'll slog joylessly through the Christian life, but so that we will actually have a full measure of his joy. What would it look like to recapture that? What would it look like to get a life that Christ will fill us with the full measure of his joy? Well, here's the the thesis this morning, the point. We need Christ both as a mission and a model if we want to have the fullness of his joy. We need Christ both as a mission and a model if we want the fullness of his joy. So to look at that, two points, Christ as mission, Christ as model. In each of them, we're going to look at the scripture and then we're going to ask ourselves a question. So Jesus as mission, Christ as mission. Look again at verse 13, if you would with me. Now at the beginning of the verse, you notice that Jesus prays this prayer with an understanding that he's about to go away. Verse 13, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world. And that's been true all the way through this prayer. Go back up to verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world. Up to verse 8, he says, I came and I did what you called me to do, God. So our Lord Jesus is near the end of his mission on earth. He has actually heard the call of God the Father. He has done his mission, and there's one more big step, that he will come, he will be hung on a cross and crucified and then resurrected from the dead. But after that, he's going back to God the Father. He's about to leave this world. But we have the exact opposite. For us, he will be leaving us here. Back to verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. Go back to verse 15 in our part of the passage. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. So Jesus, though he is leaving, intends for us to stay right here. 
Christ's point is that he leaves us, and in fact, he leaves us with a mission. He leaves us with the mission of continuing his work in the world, of being him to the world that we meet. So if you think about it, Jesus says, well, at Jesus, let's start with Paul. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, you, church, are the body of Christ, and each of you individually is a member of it. In John chapter 14, not John, wow, I'm off today. In Matthew chapter 14, the apostles see all these crowds who are hungry and they say they need food. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Jesus leaves us to, as his church, continue the mission that he has already begun. We are left in this world precisely so we can be Jesus to this world. He leaves us with a mission. That's why it is so much a part of our church to be outward facing. It's just a very basic piece of our DNA because Jesus didn't leave us to say, have a nice party every Sunday in my name. He left us with a mission. He says it at the end of the gospel of Matthew, go into all the earth and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. So we are people on a mission. This is why we're outward facing. It is never enough for us to say, well, I hope I like it this way. It's never enough for us to think about church as, will this make me happy? Even will this make other Christians happy? We're always asking, how do we make Jesus' name famous to the whole world? How do we help people see who he is? This is why we proclaim. This is also why we serve. This is why we give both in our money and our time, because we're always all about Jesus. If, if you're not a Christian and you are either here in the building or you have tuned in online, we don't want Jesus just to be interesting to you. We want him to be compelling to you, because that's who he is. We have a mission, and the mission is to make Jesus known. And that mission means we are always looking to understand how we can move forward. Well, Jesus tells us a little more about our mission. Look with me, if you will, first at verse 14. You know, my, my friend Lewis, who many of you know, Lewis Tucker in our congregation, he said this one time at lunch. He said, man, with all the training they put us through, by the time we went on the missions, the missions were a piece of cake. If you're prepared for what your mission is, you're ready. Well, Jesus says a couple things to prepare us. Verse 14, he says, guess what? It's going to be hard. Look down at the text. Um, they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. If you go before that, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. This doesn't sound like a very fun mission. Jesus has sent us into something that's going to get us hated. What does he mean and why does he mean it? Well, if we are going to be the body of Christ to our world, if we are going to do what he did, well, he came and he laid down his life for the world. He suffered for the world. He left perfect joy with God the Father to endure things for other people's good, for ours. In fact, our Lord stepped into the twisted places of our world. He spoke truth to worlds that didn't want to hear it. He dealt with power and he didn't, didn't yield. He took the people who needed the most care and loved them even at great sacrifice to himself. And if we do the same things... If we step into the areas of our world that are twisted and straighten them, if we step into the parts of our world that don't like truth and we declare truth, if we go to the least of these and raise them up, if we are fundamentally about making the world the way it ought to be, looking for justice, looking for truth, well, don't be surprised. Some people will love us for it, but some people will hate us. 
Because some people get their living out of that at status quo. And they will see the work of the church continuing Jesus' mission, and they'll say, you're raising rabble and you're dangerous and it ought not be so. So Jesus says, this is your mission, but don't have any sense of that everybody's going to love you for it. He said, they hung me on a cross for it. And so we as Christians step into a mission that Jesus says, it's going to be hard. But second, verse 13, he says, it's going to be full of joy. And you think, what? I mean, that doesn't sound very joyful. In fact, we are so tempted to think that the antonym, the opposite of hard, is joy. But realize that's not true. What's the opposite of hard? The opposite of hard is easy. Jesus says it's going to be hard, but it's going to be full of joy when you're on a mission that I've given you. Let me give a couple examples of this. On Labor Day, our friend Paul Jeun came and preached. If you were here, he talked about the value of work. And one of the examples he used, he quoted from Dorothy Sayers, who herself was quoting a physician who was a friend of, ours, of hers, talking about how it was so easy to drift from doing good work for its sake to doing good work for selfishness sake. What he said just after that, after Paul stopped reading, is really helpful here. After talking about that, he said this. He said, the reason why men often find themselves happy and satisfied in the army is that for the first time in their lives, they find themselves doing something not for the sake of the pay, which is miserable, but for the sake of getting the thing done. We'll never have Christ's joy if we don't have a mission from him, not a mission just about ourselves. The other example, the best one I could actually think of as I sort of thought on this was the movie Chariots of Fire. If you've ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire, it's about British Olympians training for the 1924 Olympics. And as they train for the Olympics, one of the main characters is a man named Eric Little. Little is a missionary to China from Scotland, and he's also gotten into running, and he turns out to be good. But as you watch the movie, I, I had been a runner just only in high school, but even as a high school runner, you watch the movie and you think, that dude's form is awful. That guy has no idea how to do running. I mean, his head's out and all over, his arms are flapping. And I figured it was just the actor didn't know what it was like to really run. But then in fact, I found out, no, he was a really good actor. This is how Eric Little ran. He had absolutely no form, no technique, but he had a heart that was a mile wide, and he was a gold medalist. And don't think that means the running didn't hurt. I will tell you, even as a high school runner, you run hard, it hurts. That's just the way it works. But though his head and his heart and his lungs and his legs were about to explode, this was his famous statement. I know God made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Being on God's mission for us doesn't take away our joy. It's what gives us our joy even when it's hard. And so here's the first question this morning. What mission has God given you and me? Now, as the church, he's given us the mission, take his name into all the world. Make things as they ought to be. But I mean this, what particular piece has he given each of us? In what specific place am I supposed to step into this world and call out truth? At what specific place am I supposed to step into this world and work towards justice? At what specific place am I supposed to step into my family and make things as they ought to be? Not just the general, okay, we all do this, but what's the piece he gave me? 
What is my mission from God in this world? Because he has given us these missions, and until we get these missions, it's easy to lose track. I mean, here's the point I'm after. It is so easy to lapse into searching for a comfortable life for ourselves. It is so easy to turn our Christian faith into just trying to make sure that my days go okay, that I have what I need, I live with ease, and Jesus says that's a poor mission. I'm calling us to something more than that. What is it for you? What is it for me? Um, Now, if you're thinking for a second, you go, wait a minute, how can I be sent into the world when it's a pandemic and I'm locked down? I'm only allowed to go to the grocery store and back home. What do you mean you've sent me into the world? What's my mission? I don't have any mission now. I go to school online. I work mostly mostly from my basement. But remember, this is where we need to make the biblical definitions accurate and bigger. When the Bible talks about the world, it doesn't mean, oh, go overseas. Now, for some of us, it might. For some of us, it will. But remember, Jesus said in verse 15, I'm not saying take them out of the world. They are in the world. What the Bible means by the term the world can be a couple different things. It can just be everything, the planet, everything we live in, or it can be the world, the system of humanity united against God. In either of those definitions, we're always in the world. And Jesus says, as you step into that world, what little corner of darkness are you supposed to peel back? If you are Zoom eight hours a day for school, students, kids, What does it mean to even bring that, an attitude which is, how do I make this what Jesus wants it to be? Parents, if you're home with kids and and you're trying to figure out how to make a family work in this kind of context, what does it mean for my house not to be this sort of tense, seething, chaotic thing that it becomes for so many of us in lockdown, but to be a little bit of what God wants it to be? Whether you're working in person or whether you're working on Zoom, What does it mean to bring to this a little bit of God's kingdom? What's God's call on each of us? What mission is there? Because we're only going to find the joy of Jesus Christ in our lives when we find his mission. That's number one, Christ's mission. Number two, Christ as a model. If we pursue that mission and we miss Christ as a model, bad things start to happen. Let me try to illustrate this with the example of a couple brothers These guys were brothers in Chicago area in the 70s. Now, they grew up as orphans. They were raised in an orphanage, educated in Roman Catholic schools, but you can tell it didn't really take. Um, They lived a wild life. They ended up playing in the bars, getting into all sorts of drugs. Eventually, one of them did hard time in prison. After he got out of prison, they found in a very supernatural way their mission from God. And they pursued that mission from God with everything they had and with absolutely no model of Jesus whatsoever. So it led to all sorts of crazy things. It was like a modern-day odyssey. They were chased by Nazi sympathizers. They only escaped when those guys ran their car off a bridge. They, in fact, met some of the greats of the all-time music scene in the world. They met Cab Calloway, Aretha Franklin, John Lee Hooker, Ray Charles... They ended up in Michigan, then back to Chicago. In the process of this all, they met supermodels. And in the end, wrecked 63 Illinois State Patrol police cars. They left such a wake behind them that, in fact, 
And if you haven't caught on, by the end of the movie, The Blues Brothers, 1980, if you haven't seen it, it's well worth the time, though I apologize for the language. By the end of the movie, they're in jail for the rest of their lives. Now, what is just fun and over-the-top craziness in a movie is a lot less fun in real life. And you and I both know people and churches and ministries that leave a huge wake behind them because they pursue Jesus' mission, but they don't pursue it with his ways. You know, it's one of the biggest downfalls of Christians in their churches, in their ministries, and in our individual lives, that we go and we pursue God's mission, but we don't pursue it in his ways, and we leave damage behind us. And Christ calls us to something more. Look back at the text again. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I send them. Now realize that means both that we are sent to the same world Jesus was sent to, but also that we're sent to do it in the same ways as he was sent, so we will do it. And what that means is it is incumbent on us to take a hard, long look at Jesus and conform what we do to his ways of doing things. Look at verse 14. I've given them your word and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. What does that mean? It means that when we pursue God's things, it is not available to us as Christians to just take a non-Christian way of pursuing them and slap them on God's goals. That it is incumbent on us to be conformed not just to his mission, but to his model. That we are not doing as we ought until we are like Jesus would have us be. In fact, this is the crucial thing. We are not there and we will never get his joy until we come into his model. What does it mean to conform in Jesus' model? Well, to do that, we'd have to do all the gospels, a lifetime of study, a lifetime of thinking. We can't say everything, but we can start with what's in this passage. Look at verse 14, three things John tells us. One, Jesus says, I've given them your word. To be doing things Jesus' way means we give him the say. We accept the word of God as our authority. The answer is not how do I want to do it or what do I think? The answer is what does God say? That is always preeminent in our thinking. We are people who commit to live our lives by the direction of another, what God tells us in the word. Second, go down three verses to verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus says, we are people of truth. It is incumbent on the Christian to be the first in honesty, to be the first to make sure things are as they ought to be, to not manipulate, to not spin, to not try to twist it. We are people who must be characterized by the fact that we believe in the truth and truth matters. It is just not optional in the Christian life. And third, two more verses down in verse 19. For them I consecrate myself that they too may be consecrated. The word there is also translated sanctified. This is a word that, and we want to camp here for a second. Rob talked about this last week in his sermon. To be sanctified has two senses in the Bible. Sense number one is to be set apart for something. Sense number two is to be made holy. And those two senses are tightly related because the way we're set apart for God's work in the world is that Jesus makes us holy. He makes us more like him. And so what does it mean then to be sanctified? What do we bring into that? Well, Jesus is the epitome of what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit are things like peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, truth. 
And Jesus exemplifies those. And we are not ready to be on his mission until that starts to become true of us. The model is what makes the mission possible. Here's the best example I can give you if you'll forgive a second running analogy in the same sermon. In high school, long time ago now, I still remember my cross-country coach crystal clear. You want to know why? Because every other team we competed against, their coaches said something like this. Here's the workout you guys need to go do. Go do it. I'll see you in an hour and a half. I'll be sitting here in front of the gym. And then they sat there and drank lemonade while their guys went and ran. You know how my coach ran his team? He sat down on a table in front of the lecture hall in the gym, and he said, this is the workout I'm going to do today. Follow me. See if you can keep up. I'll see you in front of the gym in 10 minutes. And he ran every step of every workout. You know, we won a lot, not because of me, but because of some of the other guys. But you know why we won a lot? Not because he was smart, not because he knew his stuff, though he was and he was, because we just followed our model. The model made the mission possible. And this gets to the issue of us following Jesus on his mission. This is the most crucial thing. If you tuned out, if the kids are running around like crazy in the um, living room or in the kitchen or whatever, come back for just this. You've got to get the order right. We've got to get the order right. If we, in fact, take the mission without the model, we become either a hypocrite or a monster or both. It's incumbent on us that first we are made into the image of Christ so that we then pursue his mission. If we don't, historically, this is how you get the Crusades, where people went on a mission for Christ and caused unbelievable bloodshed. This is how you get many of the evils of colonialism, where people went on a supposed missionary trip, but it really was not about missions, because they had forgotten the Jesus and how they had to do things. In the modern world, this is how a family says, hey, I want to raise my kids to live well in Christ and then turns, you know, angry and difficult and into an abusive home. This is the person who says, I'm on God's mission in this business or this political party or this educational institution and then turns into just a bully in the boardroom. This is the people in a church who fight for what they say this church ought to be and leave a body count behind them a mile wide. It is incredibly easy if we forget to be made into God's model and just start with a mission to turn into a monster. So this is the second question. Where would God have me be more in the model of Jesus? Where would God have me be more in the model of Jesus? Now, here's the really insidious part of this. When these things are happening to us, when we are actually turning into those people who are leaving a body count behind, who leave a huge wake, we almost never know it's happening. And it happens to all of us at some point or another. So it really yields two other little questions as we close. One, how would I know if this is me? I mean, the devil's a deceiver. His whole point is that he hides this from us while we're doing it. We think we're on the right side of history and the right side of God, even though we might not be. How would I know if I've been deceived in this? Now, of course, you could ask your friends. You could ask your spouse. But let me suggest from this passage, just flip the equation. Is there any joy? Where's the joy? If your Christian life is actually one of just a seething, boiling, roiling anger always about to erupt, if every time you send an email, your friends think, "Uh uh-oh, duck, 
If every voicemail, every conversation is just about to blow, and by the way, I'm talking to people of both political parties here. Don't politicize this one. If what's roiling inside you is always about to erupt, then that's a really good tip-off that maybe we've picked up a mission, but we missed a model. And that yields actually the last question. What if this is me? What if I realize, oh, that actually hits me way too close? We, and if you're new to our church, online or in person, we never end the sermon right here. You know why? Because right here it's, hey, here's something that needs to change. Go work hard and make it change. Now understand, we work hard at our faith to become more like Jesus. But you know what? If that's inside you and if it's inside me, and I guarantee you it's inside me at times, you can't just put it down. It's not that we shouldn't. It's not that we ought not be able, but in point of fact, it won't work that way. We will only fundamentally be changed when we answer this question, how does the gospel free me from this? The story of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not, here's what's wrong, now work harder to fix it, then Jesus will love you. It's the exact opposite. It's Jesus has loved you. So when you see that this is wrong, the gospel frees us to be different people. So here's the, the ultimate question, how does the gospel free me to repent, not just of other things and not the things other people do, but of my self-righteousness, of my anger, of my tendency to launch after what I think Jesus wants me to do and forgetting to actually be transformed into who he is. So let's pray God would do that in us. God, our Father, we bring to you these meditations of our hearts. We pray that you would take the ones that you would have for us that would make us different people and you would do exactly that. We pray that the gospel would step into each of our lives and hearts to create in us a repentance that makes us different people. We do want to be on your mission, Lord, but we don't want to be on your mission spreading destruction. We want to be on your mission doing good for the world in your name and for your name. So lead us in the paths of righteousness and truth and repentance. We pray and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.